everyone. I'm Phil Gamage and this is the Downtown Music Collective. I'm going to be talking about music, books, films, there's going to be some live performance, and as usual, a couple of surprises. All opinions expressed on this show are mine and mine only, and I curate all the artists that I talk about. This is in hopes that you'll be intrigued, like their work, and want to know more about them, and investigate them. So let's get started. The New, Afraid of Love, the latest single from Chicago's Tammy Savoy, produced and written by St. Rose LeFerrari. He also plays drums on it. It was recorded at DLS Studios in Chicago. Now, I've listened to uh, some of Tammy's music from the past few years. She was primarily a jazz and rockabilly vocalist. This single kind of goes in a different direction. It's more, I call it soul music, neo-soul. Uh, it follows up her single from last year called It's Been a Good Year. I like that one a lot too. Tammy is the 2019 Ameripolitan Music Award winner for Best Female Rockabilly Vocalist. She's very active in the pinup modeling scene and the retro music scene in general. She plays a lot of, a lot of festivals. I am intrigued by this new direction in Tammy's music. I am eager to hear what's next. So let's stay tuned and see what Tammy does. The New. Wasting My Time. The latest single from Sarah Borges and featuring Eric Amble. Released in late 2021. The song was co-written by the two of them. Produced by Amble at his studio in Brooklyn, New York, Cowboy Technical Services. Amble also plays lead guitar on this song. Borges is based in Massachusetts. I've enjoyed and listened to many times her 2018 album, Love's Middle Name. She's a longtime collaborator with Amble. These two know how to make good music. They know how to make good sounding records. Uh, I enjoy the restraint from the band's performance in that they lay back on the song tempo. It would be very easy to speed this up and make it more rockin', but instead it kind of has this kind of hypnotic laid back groove that just kind of chugs along. And the melody is so strong, it really wraps you and brings you in. I've heard a lot of Amble's production work in the past. He definitely has his sound, and part of that is his guitar playing. He uh, plays guitar on a lot of the songs he produces and uh, he's in demand and he does some good guitar work on this song. This single is a preview from Sarah's album Together Alone and we look forward to hearing that. The latest album from Zafania Ohora, Listening to the Music, released 2019 on Last Roundup Records. Ohora is a Brooklyn-based country artist. This is the follow-up to his debut album, This Highway. 
recorded at the Bunker Studio in Brooklyn, New York, and produced by Neil Castle. Some great players on this album. Strong songwriting. Very good production that serves the music very, very well. I appreciate that Zafania doesn't use a fake Kentucky accent in his singing or try to sing like he's from Texas. I've had enough of that in uh, current country music singers. It's not authentic, it's phony, and it's unlistenable. And shame on you if you're a country singer doing that. Be honest, be authentic. I wouldn't call uh, the music of this album revivalist. I think he's taking uh, country music of the 1960s and 70s and doing a modern take on it. Uh, standout tracks for me on this album are the uh, album opener, Heaven's on the Way. It's a breezy, fast-paced, up-tempo, kind of feel-good song. Some really good picking, guitar, lap steel, pedal steel. Uh, probably my favorite tune on the album is It's Not So Easy Today. This is a very uh, melodic ballad that's very well played, and I love it. And uh, I applaud Ohora for recording a slower song. Uh, a lot of artists don't do that on their albums. So, keep it coming, Stefania Ohora. I'm interested in what comes next. And now, The Forgotten. An album by Johnny Winter. The Progressive Blues Experiment released in spring 1969 on Liberty Records. Now this is one of my all-time favorite records, folks. I've been listening to this album since I was a teenager, and I still love it, and I still listen to it. Johnny Winter's playing on this album is marvelous. It's a little more economical than some of his later albums, but the understated star of this album is the rhythm section. They uh, take these blues songs, mostly Chicago blues songs, and they rev them up just enough, just enough, so they're rocking. Uh, eight of the tracks were recorded at the Vulcan Gas Company in Austin, Texas. That was a venue there. However, it was not in front of an audience. I think they went in on afternoons or off nights and, and cut these tracks. There are a couple of songs on the record that are uh, with Johnny playing National Steel. They're acoustic. He's playing harmonica, mandolin. They're really strong too. And rumor has it they were recorded at the producer's house in his living room. But they sound great. The production sounds great. It's, it's hard for me to compare it to anything because it doesn't really sound like anything from that era or this era. Sonically, it's in its own unique spot. And unlike his peers at the time, uh, other blues rocks titans, such as Cream and Led Zeppelin, there are no psychedelic meanderings on this record. No Middle Eastern scales, no sitars. This is straight, authentic blues rock. I don't have too many complaints about this album. Standout tracks. Well, number one for me is a song that Johnny wrote, one of the few that he wrote on this album, called Mean Town Blues. And this song has a tremendous uh, guitar, drums breakdown in the middle. It was a standard in Johnny's set for many years. Rollin' and Tumblin', the Muddy Waters song, 
start side one and it just comes in with this great slide guitar and off we go with the record. Help Me, the Sonny Boy Williamson song. Uh, Sonny Boy's version is kind of a laid back shuffle kind of thing. Not Johnny's. He, he speeds it up and it sounds mean, it sounds angry, and it sounds great. Now a little background about Johnny Winter. He was born in Mississippi. His family moved to Beaumont, Texas when he was very young. Johnny was a virtuoso musician from the get-go. His brother Edgar is too. So by the time he was a teen, uh, Johnny Daddy Cool Winter was a band leader. He was a sideman. He was playing Top 40 Rock. He was playing blues. He had released a few singles. I know one for Atlantic Records, mostly for local Texas labels. But I don't think it looked like he was going to get out of Texas. However, the whole climate of the music scene changed for uh, rock music in the late 60s. The whole hippie thing came into being. And Johnny was an opportunist, he was ambitious, and he saw which way the wind was blowing. So he made some changes to his band and his presentation. He stripped it down to a power trio, renamed it Winters, and started playing the hippie ballrooms in Texas. Uh, most notably, the Vulcan Gas Company in Austin and the Love Street Light Circus in Houston. Uh, Johnny found a new audience at these venues and he got real popular real fast so much that he was offered a recording contract by a couple of Austin based producers that worked for a local label Sony Beat Records and they're the ones that recorded the sessions for the Progressive Blues Experiment. Well about the time all this was going down for Johnny an article appeared in Rolling Stone magazine about the Texas music scene that singled him out and praised him a whole lot. Uh, it led to him flying to New York and sitting in with Jimi Hendrix, sitting in with Mike Bloomfield. He was the toast of the town and he uh, accepted a huge advance for Columbia Records, one of the biggest ever given a rock musician at that time. So he signed with Columbia, went in, recorded their album. It came out late spring of 69. However, he still had this album in the can that he had done for Sony Beat Records. Sony Beat sold the rights to the masters to Liberty Records in Los Angeles and they put it out on their imprint. And that actually came out a couple of months before uh, Johnny Winter's first Columbia album. Okay, let's talk about a new film I saw. Karen Dalton, In My Own Time, from 2020, directed by Richard Peet and Robert Yaplowitz. It is finally available for streaming and it did not disappoint. Uh, Karen Dalton was a folk and blues singer active in the 1960s and 1970s. I can't remember the first time I heard or how I heard or where I heard her music, but it has made a big impression on me. It really has touched my soul. I would take Karen Dalton any day over listening to a Joan Baez song, alright? Of course that's just me, it's just my opinion. But that's how strongly I feel about it. Uh, her voice is haunting, it's sad, and it is incredibly moving. 
Uh, she recorded two albums, one in the late 60s, one in the early 70s. The first one's a little more folky. The second one has more of a rocking sound. It's a little more produced with a full band. They're both equally great. She was born in Oklahoma, grew up in Oklahoma, married very early as a teen, had a couple of children as a teen, a son and a daughter. At a certain point in her early 20s, she left Oklahoma, left her children, and moved to New York's Greenwich Village in New York City. This was when the folk scene was at its height. Uh, she quickly fell in with that crowd and made a big impression. Here's a photo of her singing with Bob Dylan and Fred Neal, another one with Tim Harden. She recorded several songs written by Fred Neal and Harden, and I think they're among her best. Uh, she was close with Bob Dylan, too. It was disappointing to not see him in this film making some comments about Karen. I have a feeling the uh, directors and producers must have pitched it to him, but for whatever reason he's not in it. Uh, one of the strengths of the film is they were able to find not only a lot of archival footage, a lot of archival photos that I had never seen before, but they were also able to interview a whole lot of people that were part of Karen's life, that were close to her, some family members, ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands. It was all very enlightening to hear what they had to say. Uh, sadly, both her daughter and sister at a certain point had to cut her off while she was still alive uh, for various reasons, and it's just sad to think about that. Her career was over by the 1980, early 80s. It was finished. Uh, she had that first trip to New York City in the early and mid-60s. Then she moved to Colorado, lived in the mountains for a couple years. Uh, Tim Harden was out there. Then she moved back to New York City to give the music biz and her career in music one more shot. But that, in a way, uh, was about the time that her problems really began. She developed a very serious narcotics habit. And that started to degrade her ability to handle a lot of the pressure of having a music career getting to shows, showing up on time. She had the opportunity to open a few shows, a few concerts for Santana, go out on tour with him. That didn't go that well. You know, all the photos I had seen of, uh, of Karen prior to this show, most of them is this sadly beautiful woman playing a 12-string guitar, looking a little strung out, looking a little straggly, missing her two front bottom teeth, You'll find out what happened to those teeth in the film, by the way. So to me, the clouds have parted on Karen Dalton. We know a lot more about her. Swans, Sacrifice and Transcendence. The Oral History by Britain's Nick Soulsby, 2019. Let's talk about this book. There's kind of been a renaissance of interest in the band Swans. We have this book, there's a film out, I would recommend that as well. This book is in the oral history format, which means it's a presentation of interviews with numerous subjects who shed light on the topic of the book. I happen to enjoy reading 
bio books about artists and time periods and artistic movements that are written in this form. Very revealing. Uh, the writer doesn't paraphrase who he interviewed. He actually publishes what they interview. So you're going right to the source. I believe I would have liked to have seen a little bit more emphasis on the periods of swans where the lineups changed and their sound changed and for X amount of years this musician was in the band and the music sounded this way then they left new people were brought in and trust me a lot of new people were brought into swans uh, the band is the brainchild of the founder and the guiding light Michael Gyra a lot of people have come and gone uh, through the years so it's it's a band in name only it's it's really his his project totally uh, a lot of the collaborators of course have affected the direction he's gone in uh, most notably uh, Jarbo who was a woman from Georgia that he uh, started to work with in the late 80s into the 90s that was a uh, successful artistic partnership I'd say a little background about uh, Gyra and Swans. They began in the early 80s in New York's East Village, Lower East Side. They were part of the uh, noise rock scene along with bands like Rat at Rat R and Sonic Youth. Uh, their sound started to uh, soften up a little in the beginning. It was just so loud, so bombastic, very dirge-like. Uh, you had Michael screaming uh, the lyrics to the songs. I, in fact, saw them in this time period. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Then about the time Jarbo comes along, uh, the music starts to get more variation, slower songs. Uh, she adds kind of a softness to it. Some would argue it's a, a feminine softness. But I just think that's uh, what she brought to it and, and Jaira was wise and smart enough to acknowledge it and realize its value. Uh, they were signed to a major label, forget the name of the label, in the late 80s. Uh, they were not picked up after that one album came out on the label. So uh, Jaira had to pick up the pieces and uh, get the band going again. And one impression you get from this book, one main thing I take away from it is how hard a worker Mike Gyra is. This guy is relentless and he has taken so many hits. He's had successes, he's had failures, but he always gets up off the mat. He's a real fighter and a real worker and uh, a true band leader. Uh, a band leader to the point of where I know uh, he doesn't always make uh, some of the musicians he's worked with happy but uh, I think he's so focused on what he's doing and his art and his craft that being the most popular person in the room really isn't a priority for him and I understand that and I think that's that focus that's kept him going all these years okay um, in the 90s he disbanded Swans and uh, pursued a more acoustic vision for his music I don't think that was that successful for him. So he started Swans again early 2010s and uh, he found a new audience for the band and they have toured the world. 
They are uh, very successful uh, playing Moscow, uh, everywhere, Middle East, everywhere. Now, on a personal note, I have some history with swans. Uh, Michael and I both lived in New York's Lower East Side around the same time. We were both part of the same music community. Uh, Michael, in fact, collaborated with a project I was working with at the time. He mixed a record by uh, the band I played with, Certain General, called Holiday of Love for Labor Records. Go listen to it. It's out there. But he did a great job. I also knew a lot of the musicians that went in and out of swans through the years. I'm still friends with a couple of them. And the word back then was that Michael wasn't easy to work with. That uh, he was very temperamental, etc., etc. Yet there were always a lot of musicians that wanted to play in his band. And once he started to have some success, like go to Europe and so forth, trust me, they were lining up to be in his band. So you got to take that uh, for what it's worth. I'm very happy that Mike Gyra and Swans have had the success they've had in recent years. I think he deserves it. It's a feel-good story. Swans, the feel-good years. Whoever would have thought it? So uh, here's to Swans. Here's to Nick Soulsby for writing the book. One last thing. One of Gyra's longest collaborators and colleagues in the band has been the guitar player Norman Westberg. He's in the book. I would have liked to have seen a little more from Norman, a little more insight. He's, he's one musician that could look back with Gyra at almost the whole history, the whole thing, because he's been involved. He's still playing in the band as far as I know. I'm not really sure what their status is, to, to be honest, as, as you're aware things have gotten a little cloudy with touring and who's doing what. So uh, check out the book and check out the film if you're interested. Oh hey, so I'm going to take you out on a song. This is one I co-wrote. It's on my From Nowhere to Somewhere album. And it's called Never Ending Setting Sun. Please. 